I had a boss once who's a great mentor for me. I learned so much from him and I grateful for all he did for me. And one of the things that he was really wonderful about is he let me tease him, which was delightful. And I remember when I would make big mistakes, I would say, you know, boss, what I really appreciate about you is you're not perfect either, so I don't have to be. And God bless him, like he would let me say that to him. What's one thing I wish for? It's that we remember each other's humanity and that none of us are perfect. We're not perfect. It would be boring if we were perfect. We would be boring and we're not. We as leaders and colleagues and coworkers could have more grace for imperfections. I think things would be a lot better for all of us. And welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. And welcome to today's episode of Revenue Leadership. I have the pleasure of talking to the managing partner at Executive Development Consultancy. You've got to refer me to talk, talk about EDC a lot throughout them. Um, they're a firm who focus a lot on accelerating leadership development organizations, especially for that C-suite VP kind of level for Fortune 100 companies. And the organization really, really intrigues me, actually. I really like them, which is why. Dr. Stacey Philpott here today is, they are an organization who believe in creating unique solutions for their clients and adapt to what's going on for them. And for those of you who listen to me a lot, you know I talk a lot about hate boxes. I hate putting people in boxes that hate when we approach things with one fight, one size fits all because that's not the way the world is. So as you can imagine, when I saw that about EDC, I'm like, yes, this is my kind of people. I know it's going to be great. It's a great conversation. But outside of that, she has spent, what, 20 plus years working in amazing organizations, serving CEOs, C-suites in places like Apple, Nine, Chase, PayPal, you know, just small little companies that you do your day-to-day living with as well as um, she was one of the heads of Deloitte Succession and Leadership Development Program, guiding them in a lot of different areas around succession, talent assessment, leadership development, and inclusion. And she is solely utilizes her skills in psychology a lot in her work. So I am looking forward to today's conversation with Dr. Stacey Fulford. How are you doing? I am great, and I'm so happy to have this conversation with you. Like like you said, I, I love talking about unique solutions. I love the creativity in our work, and uh, I'm just really excited to get to, to talk to you today about the work we both do. It's it's a joy to be here. Thank you. I think in most interviews I do, there's probably only two regular questions I ask. One is around how, when you go back to a younger version of you, what did you want to do when you were, let's go teenagers and below what was what would that young Stacy like then so I'm gonna give you a boring answer and I'm sorry to disappoint you but I actually really wanted to be a psychologist in high school so it started there was a program in my high school that was about teaching peer leaders to be kind of supporting other high school students and you had to go through this training and learn all about it and then they wanted you to sit in an office and have office hours after you went to this training and so I went through the training and I remember thinking there is no way that another high school student is going to come into an office and talk to a peer like in a therapeutic setting 
but I loved what I learned and ended up using it in a lot of my relationships. And it was sort of the first time I got exposed to the idea of things like social psychology and community psychology. And this belief that we can teach people ways of thinking and being and how to improve their relationships and how that's going to benefit the world may not look the way we think it's going to work, but it will make a difference. And so the idea for me of, wow, if I learn more about how people interact and how do you support people and care for them, I can start to make a difference, but it may not look the way people think. So that happened for me kind of when I was a sophomore in high school and I got really passionate about it and just became really curious about what are the factors that make people act the way they do? Why do they do things and why do they sometimes do things that don't seem to make sense? Became just kind of a lifelong thing that I wanted to learn more about. And actually I can, I can relate to this. So I'm very curious to find out what was it like when, because that's a very different way of thinking, especially as, as a teenager. I remember when I was young, a lot of kids around the time of sleeps sports, girls, all those kind of different things. And then you start having conversations with people and you start to ask some very intriguing but deep questions. And people are looking at you like, why are you asking me this? Was that a very similar experience for you? So it was completely that. I mean, like, I think one of the things that I was really bad at in high school, in addition to sports, was chit-chat. You know, like, I kind of wanted to go for the meaningful conversation, like, too early and right away and had to back up sometimes. But it was really because I have this deep curiosity about people. I love people. I love understanding people and learning about people. And it's just sort of my passion. And when you're curious about someone in the right way, it makes them feel really cared for. And being curious about people and wanting to learn about them, that just kind of became something that I was good at. I, I think I also really liked, I will say there was a curiosity, but there was also part of me that really likes bringing people together. You know, I'm not a, really a wallflower personality and I love bringing people together to do things. I'm sort of a natural organizer. It was actually the combination of being curious about people and what makes them who they are and listening to them and wanting to bring people together to do things. I think it's that combination that led me to do the work that I do because that was sort of a leadership piece and a, you know, I wanted to do more than just working with people one-on-one. -on -one. And that started pretty early for me. Has that curiosity ever got you in trouble? Oh, totally. I don't know if the curiosity got me in trouble, but the bringing people together has definitely sometimes gotten me in trouble. I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I know we talked once before that I did my graduate work around what, what are the early family experiences that make that women in leadership roles have had. So I, I kind of wanted to understand, and at the time, you know, you, you have to remember this is 20 years ago, understanding there were so few female CEOs and really women in the C-suite and kind of trying to understand, well, are there early family experiences that allow these women to do what they do better and, and why? What I found was it was really how women learned to deal with authority early on with their parents, with their teachers, and when they were willing to question and push back on authority, they kind of learned early on how to do it and to keep doing it and it helped them. And it sort of makes sense because if you think about what is the one thing a leader, no matter what organization they're in or really what role they're at, they have to do is they have to keep going when people say no. If you're going to be a leader at some point, people, you're going to say, I need to do X and everyone's going to be like, that's not a good idea. We don't want you to do that. Here are the reasons it won't work. And that's 10 times true if you're a founder. So the higher you go in leadership, the more people are going to tell you no. And how do you get around that and work through it and have 
a self-belief that what you think is right needs to happen in the world kind of happens early on. And so I think I had a little bit of that, of my curiosity would lead me to push back on people. So I'd be curious about something and people would be like, that doesn't make sense or you can't do that. And instead of saying yes, I'd be like, but that doesn't make sense to me. I want to understand it more. And sometimes people don't like it when kids do that. And so, yeah, I'd say it, it occasionally got me into into trouble. I would I would push boundaries a little bit. But I also think that that's an appropriate skill for leaders. So, you know, who's to say that it didn't help me along the way, I guess, is how I think about it. Would you say that it's, if you don't form that at a very young age, is it hard to develop as you get older? And what are the ways that people, especially women, can begin to develop that ability to be able to push back. But I do think that women are taught more not to push back. And so I do find sometimes that, but men, men also, but more so with women, that often my work with women who are at the C-suite behind closed doors can be how overwhelmed they are by how much they have to deal with people saying no to them. The conflict of, you know, when, when, you're, when you're early on in your career, people say, go do X, right? And the expectations of what success looks like are, are not simple, but they're at least aligned. By the time you're a vice president, people want you to do things in conflict, right? One person wants you to do this and another person wants you to do that, and they don't actually align, and that's natural. But for people who haven't had to push back and not take it too personally, if that's the first time they're dealing with it, it's really hard. And what they get into is this sort of idea of, well, they come to me and go, well, how do I make everybody happy? And my answer is, you do not. So let's pick who you're going to make happy and let's start with why. Right. And, and, and even that question, right, I don't have as many male clients say to me, how do I make everybody happy? Right. Like sometimes they do, but it's not as frequent. Right. And again, these are gross stereotypes, but it's hard as a leader. It's hard when you're trying to be a good person and you're dealing with the social system and teams and you know that every day you're going to go out there and people are going to be upset. That's just draining and hard. So helping people understand that it's not personal and getting really clear on what is it that they stand for, why are they doing what they're doing, can be can be helpful. Both the career that you you've had, both in, in consultancy and the work that you do do now, you've lived all around the world on um, different spaces and places. I'm curious, how has that even helped you in your framing of the world, of different cultures, of being able to push back even more and navigate in those different spaces and places? That's such an interesting question. You know, I told you that early on, I was really interested in psychology. And, you know, the root of psych, if you go into psychology back 60, 70 years, a lot of the work was sort of intrapsychic. It was very internal. It was what makes us do what we do because of who we are inside. A lot of my belief is that we act a lot our behavior is dictated by our context. If you think about how you go through the world during the day, if you had to describe your own experience of why you do what you do, you don't normally say, it's because of my ego. What you normally say is, it's because it's snowing outside, I stubbed my toe, my kids yelled at me, 
and a work deliverable got moved up. That's why I'm behaving the way I did, right? That's how we actually act. And so kind of as I studied psychology in college, I thought, well, this is this is a perspective, but it's it really doesn't kind of line up with everything I know about how we understand our own experience and behavior. At the same time, I was really interested in languages. I was lucky enough to study Japanese in high school. We had a, a great program at the public high school that I went to. What's really interesting about Japanese is you cannot choose the vocabulary that you use in a conversation unless you understand the relationship you have with another person. So if I want to greet you, the, the type of greeting I use depends on what the hierarchy is between us so that I can show the right amount of respect and acknowledge that relationship. And when I learned that, like for me, you know, as a, as a high school kid, like that was fascinating. That like opened up a new world to me. And I started to look at how things like language shape our thought. It's not that we have a thought first in language. Like actually language shapes how we think and how we interact. And that got me kind of interested in, in culture and understanding culture. So for me, and I would say, well, how does that shape my work, you know, 30 years later? I would say there are a lot of people in our field who still look at who is the person. And for me, what I'm always looking at is the Venn diagram between the person and their context. So when I'm working with an individual leader, I like to understand their history. Who are they? What motivates them? What are their aspirations? What are they good at? What do they struggle with? But then I really want to look at that that role. What are they here in their organizational context to do? What do people expect of them? How do those expectations align or, as we said, not align? And then how do those two pieces fit together? Where are they going to fit together naturally and where are there going to be some challenges? And I think that comes from looking at that, that, that blend of who are we, but also what is our context? And we have to keep both of those at the forefront and kind of looking at how our behavior shows up at work. It's really um, fascinating because I think about Japanese culture, even some of what you just described for me, there is, especially in that culture, there's a stillness that they have. And they spend a lot of time with being introspective as well. It's just part of who they are and how they, they how the culture looks at things. When I look at the West in particular, we are very, very different from that. So when you are asking leaders those questions, the first thing that came to my mind was, isn't a lot of times they don't have the answers to that. I think we don't. But I mean, wouldn't you agree that sometimes if somebody asks you a question that you don't have an answer to, that's the thing that spurs you to think differently, right? So sometimes just asking questions serves a purpose, even if we don't know. So for me, let's just use that example to continue. Asking the question, how do what people expect of you, how is it in conflict? Helps someone to be like, oh, wait a minute, I hadn't really thought about that. But if you pause, it's part of your lived experience. Like in actuality, all day long, we have people who expect things of us that don't line up from our family, to our boss, to our direct reports, to our shareholders, to the media. I find it, I think there are some assumptions we sometimes have that like life is simpler, like things align. And when we stop and go, wait a minute, the natural course of life is that these things are in conflict. Let's acknowledge that and then let's decide how we want to deal with it rather than thinking it's a problem or it's I failed somehow. I think a lot of leaders when everything is in conflict are like, oh my goodness, they failed. And instead I look at it and go, no, 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 this is actually how things are. And that's one of the benefits I think, in, and I'm curious if this has been your experience, that as consultants we have, there's some things I can't do, but by working with lots of people in lots of contexts, 
I can have pattern recognition about what at least is typical and common and share that with people. So I can say when I work with a CEO, hey, when I've worked with CEOs, I can tell you that typically here are the three key problems they're going to have. You may not have this yet, but you might consider it. What everybody wants of you is going to be in conflict. Get used to it. Number two, you are going to grossly underestimate how much of your work is actually about managing the external versus the internal. And third, you're going to realize that it's more about the people and how you bring people along than just your strategy, right? So that comes from sort of the commonality of, you know, repeated conversations over years where you start to see these patterns. Yeah, I can, I can definitely relate to especially that, that last point, which I, I must admit still takes them by surprise how many senior leaders still think at that level in particular, the technical skills they have is probably the major one. I'm like, no, it's not. It's about the people. It's about bringing them together, bringing on that journey. It's about spending that time to be able to cascade both external shareholders, internal team, C-suite, as well as the way throughout the company. And that are even like storytelling, communication, some of those core fundamental skills are so needed at that level. It's no longer my technical skills anymore. That's the help to understand stuff. There's a lot more required from you. It gives you credibility and credibility does matter, right? Content knowledge and credibility matters. The way I sometimes talk about it, and I don't know if this resonates with you, when I'm working with senior leaders, and when I say senior in this case, let's talk about like the executive team. I think one of the things that happens on those teams is the team tends to operate a level below where it wants to or feels it should. There's sort of a corporate gravity that pulls the team down. And part of what happens is those leaders haven't been more conscious of thinking about how they want to create value for the company. You know, early on, like we tend to be rewarded for things and those create a sense in us of what what it is and how we bring value to a company. I'm a good project manager. I'm a good consultant. I'm a good business developer. I'm a good marketer. I'm a good researcher. Whatever it is in our function, we learn that that's how we create value. And then what happens is we start managing other people. And there's that first experience you have where, you know, when you're a manager and you realize that you can't do the work, you have to help other people do the work. How it feels for most people is not empowering and wonderful. How it feels is actually quite scary because what they're doing is they're giving up what gives them value and currency for something they're not yet good at. And that happens throughout your career. And then you get to the senior level and it's like, oh, I'm about, you know, integrating the company and removing roadblocks. How do I, how do I do that? How is that valuable? And it can be scary for people because their identity tends to be around, you know, something they know or some skill they have. And it can be really scary. Was it scary for when you moved from, I want to say corporate and the last major role at Deloitte and then moving into what you do at EDC? Did you feel like that was a change in your identity? Because that is a massive shift still from moving from a company such as Deloitte to um, EDC and everything you built since then. I think there were things that were hard about it and there were things that were easy and they weren't what I expected. So, you know, my, like I said, you know, like I'm a kind of a, a boring, consistent, I don't know what you want to call it, but like I kind of know what I like and I follow my passion. And I have always been really interested in two things. Why do people do what they do? And how do you bring people together to build things? Like if you go back through my history, I've been attracted to entrepreneurial settings. I've joined consultancies to learn, but then did a startup and took a company through sale and then 
was attracted to Deloitte because they wanted to build a practice. So I like building things, right? I think what was scary when I left this time was, I mean, it was one of those leadership situations. I had to do something that everybody told me I was crazy to do, right? It was a senior partner at a well-established firm, well-compensated, well-resourced and supported. But it wasn't what I wanted to do because at that, I stopped getting to do the work. And I love the work that I do. I love coaching. I love working with teams. I love helping companies think about how they align their top leaders and prepare them for what they need to do. Like that is just exciting to me. I think, you know, I'm, I'm the, I was the sole breadwinner in my family and having to take make that decision and say, I really like this. This is really what I want to do. I'm going to go out there and take a shot at it. And it happened that I made that decision on January 1st of 2020, which is about two months before COVID hit. And what I tell people all the time, and I remember, I mean, I distinctly remember it was like March my kids went on spring break and they didn't go back. And I remember when they put caution tape around the playground so kids wouldn't play on the playground. And I distinctly remember thinking, what have I done? I probably made a crazy mistake. Like the world is falling apart. I don't have a job. I'm going out and I'm going to build this new company. And I did. And what I say to people all the time is I'm so glad that I did it in January. Because if I had tried to do it in April, I would have said that I couldn't do it and I could. And so sometimes just doing what you want to do, even when it doesn't make sense and taking that leap of faith. I mean, how many people do you know who in their lives come out and go, you know, there was a time in my life where I took a leap of faith and it was a terrible mistake. And most people don't say that. They do it and they learn from it. It may not work out the way they want, but they don't say... They wish they'd never taken a leap of faith. So for me, it was it was scary and it was incredibly rewarding. And I am glad that I made that decision. It allows me to do getting back at how you opened, right? What we were talking is it's given me the freedom to really focus on doing work where I can have an impact and being able to be creative and work with my clients to say, what is the right solution for you right now? We can relate and connect with your clients in, in a massive way because even what you described earlier on around a lot of times as you get up and up and up, some of the pain that we see clients go through is they're no longer in the work that they love doing. They're spending far too much time doing it on the bits and pieces and they want to get back into it. But a lot of them are scared because, like you said, the identity has been tied into the great compensation, the company name, all that kind of stuff. So step into something new can always feel so scary. But you going through that journey, you can relate at so many levels and you can easily help them just to peel back those, those layers a lot more to help them to really identify what really is at play, what really is important for you here. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I'm sure if I asked you in your life, moments where you were afraid, weren't they often turning points? for you like the fear preceded the moment in your life that turned out to be incredibly rewarding i mean we don't usually have an incredibly rewarding moment after boredom <laughs> you know like it's not how life works right like we spend all this time trying to avoid fear but fear is what gives us the experiences that are rewarding and that we want it's kind of sort of silly you know what i appreciate about that is you know you you just even saying the word fear because one of the things that I, that really, I won't say bothers me, but that I work with clients is it's, it's so hard for people to talk about fear at work. 
you know, it's really hard for people to talk. It's almost like if they say it, then, you know, something bad will happen. And yet, like, look at our world, right? I mean, so I have a lot of leaders right now who are really really frustrated, right? They're they're frustrated that they can't get more out of their people, right? There was a, I don't know if you saw this, but there was an article, there was kind of a study at the beginning of over the summer talking about at least in the United States that productivity was in an all-time low and that no one knew why. And I remember seeing that headline. I don't know what, what your reaction to was it, what your reaction was to that headline, but mine went something like this. Are you kidding? Like, you don't know why productivity is low? Everyone's exhausted. Come on. You know, like, it just seems sort of silly. It was like, have you talked to any working moms over the past two years? So what's going on, right, in organizations right now is CEOs are saying, I want people to come back to, to work. They're not coming back the way I want. I'm worried about productivity. I'm worried about earnings. And there's this thing called quiet quitting. And that just makes me more annoyed. And they're frustrated. And you know, the, the approach I bring to the conversation, and I'm curious to hear what you what you do, is I try to help them get in touch with the fear. It's not just the exhaustion, but it's the fear that people have. Like, what's going on right now is people are burned out and they're afraid. And that combination together is awful. So the burnout is happening because people both put in a lot of energy over COVID. And they're not, there's so much change that they're not feeling progress. The antidote to burnout is not rest. The antidote to burnout is momentum. So what leaders can do when they're trying to deal with a workforce that is burnout is stopping and saying, how do we give our people a sense of momentum and forward progress? In the West, we talk a lot about you know their goals and we're going to hold you accountable. So you're either going to meet a goal or you're not. It's very black and white. But now people's goals are so complicated that if you if you wait until they've met the goal, and you don't help reward the progress along the way, then people get burned out and they sort of give up. I mean, if you think about when you're teaching a kid something, you know, when they're tying their shoe, you don't, you know, go tie your shoe. And when they haven't tied their shoe, you go, you haven't tied your shoe. I'm holding you accountable for tying your shoe. You failed, right? Like that's not going to work. You know, you help them get progress along the way. And I think we've forgotten that. So part of it is, why is productivity low? Well, people are burned out. Well, just holding them accountable isn't going to get you what you want. What it is, is how do you find momentum and show momentum. That's kind of piece number one. And then I think the second piece is, how do we actually talk about fear? So if you think about what are employees dealing with today, what they're dealing with is unprecedented change, new ways of working, changing work norms, needing to be lean, unprecedented you know, ways of, of, of things happening, both in the consumer environment and their work environment and, and, and everywhere, right? So imagine you had a friend and you said, hey friend, you're gonna do something that you haven't had to do before. In fact, you're not gonna just do one thing, you're gonna do like four things. And you're gonna do those four things in front of people who you want to look good in front of, right? How they think of you is tied to your identity. Oh, and by the way, as you're doing those things you don't know how to do publicly in front of people who you care about how they perceive you, how you're able to take care of your family could be at stake. How are they gonna feel, right? They're going to be nervous. They're going to be afraid. And we sort of don't talk about that. And yet it's very human. So for me right now, if you said like what's going on in the world, I think in my work with leaders, it's a lot of reminding them of how can they show their people momentum and think of their role as a leader as the person who's monitoring progress, not just holding accountability. And how do they talk with people to guide them through fear to experiment? And I think right now that is really the work of leaders.
I don't know. I don't know if that resonates with your experience, but that's kind of what I'm seeing. If someone said, "What's different now?" Those are the two things that I think are, are really at the forefront. Part of what I've also seen add to that burnout link in that and fear has also been the environment that people are people worried of working hard. They already, like you said, recovering from the impacts of COVID, but because of the environment right now it's so shaky, you're seeing mass layoffs across the pond, especially in the tech sector. People feel the need to have to work even harder just to prove that they should be there, they shouldn't lose their jobs. And therefore that's what added more. And that's that fear in the system. And when you talk about it not being mentioned, it's like, well, it's it's right there. That's one of the reasons why people are feeling the way they feel. And having leaders, I'm gonna say, have the courage to actually be able to address that and be like, we recognize that okay, we, might, we might have had to go through layoffs and there might be some fear within the system right now but we can talk about it. We can give a voice, a language to your word use earlier on to it. So you don't feel like you're the only one going through that, but you also create opportunity in a forum where people can discuss how they're really feeling, which will help bring some of that fear down. But when you don't mention it, all it does is just ramp it up and up and up, which then leads to that burnout, which then leads to some of the things you talked about. That's right. It's like, how do we, I mean, sometimes I, I think about development as how do we think about what's the conversation our leaders aren't having and how do we design an experience so they can have that conversation in a productive way? The work of leadership happens via conversation and dialogue. So how we guide people to have conversations that they need to have can be really impactful. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to. Which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. How does that line up with, um, I've heard you talk about it we've also been the past around um the fact that top-down style of management is not effective anymore that's changed that's gone and we need leaders to be a lot more nimble and when i think about personally over the last probably 10 to 15 years there is a gap in leisure development which i feel organizations are paying the cost for now which is the ability to be able to have the conversations that you just talked about because for so long, it was like, oh, we're not going to talk about this. And we just ignored it. And we were able to get people through. But now things have changed so much that you have to have the conversation on that. But leaders are not equipped to be able to do that properly. And that's where we're seeing some of the, the noise and the issues kind of coming through as well. How do you think about that? Okay. There are kind of two points I have when I think about that. The first thing is in our industry. So now I'm going to talk about leadership development as a industry, if you will. A lot of the roots of what we do in organizations came from the training world versus just the psychology world, which is if we want to change behavior, if we teach something to someone, their behavior will change. If you don't know how to have a difficult performance management conversation, if I give you the recipe for how to have a conversation and quote unquote, train you, you will then go and change your behavior. If you go into psychology and you think about that, that would be like telling me that if I eat less and exercise more, I will lose the 10 pounds that I've been trying to lose for two years. Okay, I know that, but it's actually not changing my behavior. 
right? So if we can look at leaders of development, you know, you have to start and go, well, why is someone not having that performance management conversation, even if we give it the recipe? Well, they're worried about losing social capital. They're worried about hurting someone's feelings. They're embarrassed. They've never done it before, right? And so just telling people what to do without addressing two things. One is the emotional state that that situation creates. And the third and the second is motivation is not going to result in changing behavior. And leadership development shouldn't be about transferring content knowledge, right? I teach you something. It's actually why we're investing in it is to change behavior in the system. That's our goal. So then when we need to, for your question is, I always start with motivation. So when people come to me and they're like, you know, our leaders don't have a sense of ownership in the company and they're not innovative and they don't take risks. First, my assumption is there's a good reason why they don't do that. And we need to all be really clear in what it is. And the second thing is, I would say then they're not motivated to do that in the right way. So what what's going to create motivation? And part of it is understanding that the more senior you get, you're playing, sometimes people get moved to a state of playing not to lose versus playing to win. So they have a lot to lose. And when you want to motivate someone who's playing not to lose, it's different than playing to win. So what I mean by that is CEOs typically are playing to win. They want to win. They're motivated. They're competitive, they're achievement oriented, they're in a high pressure job, they are living in the world to win. And then they look at maybe the top 100 people in their organization, and a lot of those people are playing not to lose. And they try to motivate them as a person who's playing to win, and it does not work. Because when, you, when you're playing to win, what you say is, oh my God, look at the great big world, there's so much out there we can do, we can be better than everyone, look how exciting this opportunity is. And for someone who's playing not to lose, what that sounds like is danger, 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 you know, fear, 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 and they kind of shut down. When you're motivating someone who's playing not to lose, what you have to say is, here's what you have, and that's great. And here's how the world is changing. So if you want to keep what you have and the world is changing, you may have to change. The state of protecting what you have is not a place you can stay. So what I do in leadership development situations is I usually work with leaders and say, with the CEO or the head of strategy and say, let's talk about how your world is changing, your business model, competitive pressures, regulation. And first, we need to paint the picture for your senior leaders about how the world that they used to know and sort of grew up in actually doesn't exist. And then look at that world together and ask them the question, given this world where your business model may not be as profitable, where regulatory pressures are going to change what your customers expect from you. How are you going to need to lead? So it separates kind of what they want and how they want to be with what's required. Then you can have the conversation around what type of leadership do we need? What skills do you need? How do you have a performance conversation? But if you don't do that first, what you have is a lot of people who are in a ballroom nodding, waiting to have coffee instead of getting ready for a different future. So it's that act of actually walking them through the experience from what you just kind of said, um, it's really important to take them there because you take them to not where they want to be, which feels safe and secure, but you take them to where they need to be, which is based on everything you just kind of just talked about around the environment, the change, the reduction in, in profit and all that kind of stuff. So they can really understand, oh, okay, this, this might, this in the future that we're potentially heading towards, what does that look like? What does that feel like? How am I handling? How am I feeling? So you can actually get them to connect with their emotions in that state and then help them to kind of have a plan or approach as to what to do next and how to ta tackle it. Exactly. Like if you sit down with a leadership team and you say, as people have done in our business, 
we need to create a competency model. What are the leadership capabilities that will make someone successful? In my experience, what you get is a projective test of those people's preferences and things they like about themselves. It's also very backward looking because what they're referencing is what worked for them 10 years ago to help them get to the executive committee. So it's not the most useful question if their business is changing. If their business is stable, which is unusual today, it's fine. What a better question is, is to say, is to kind of do it in a, uh, a from toward, right? And so that gives distance for uh, perspective. So to say, if we think about our business 10 years ago, what was going on in our industry? What did that mean about how we made money and our operating model and what, what capabilities required? And what did that mean about the type of leaders we needed to be? So for example, to make it more specific, let's say you're a consumer company, a small growing consumer company. You make your money by creating a product, it's highly branded and you sell it to uh, wholesalers. And so you're very, very much about brand. Well, in that environment, marketers, people get brand who can be really inspirational and creative, that really works. An environment where maybe you're not going wholesale and you're moving to everything being online, and now you need digital talent and you need things that are more creative and iterative. Kind of standing up at a town hall and being inspirational may not actually be the type of leadership you need. You may need to do more listening, more curiosity. You may need to help your people come up with their own solutions because you're creating something that didn't exist. So helping leaders think about what kind of leader I need to be is dictated by my environment. We're getting back to that conversation of who am I as a leader, but what's my context? What is your context does dictate as a leader what you need to do to be effective. It's not just your preferences. And when people get really senior, sometimes they get deferred to and people don't push back and tell them that. But, you know, it's it's real. And so helping leaders really understand what is my context for my business and what does that mean about what will make me effective, I think is a really important question to ask. I'm curious, are there any other key questions that you would ask any leader to check in with themselves and to ask themselves as you think about the future? I mean, I love working with futurists because they change the way we think. Uh, there's a guy named Bob Johansson at the Institute for the Future, and I, I think he's lovely because he's always piquing people's interest and helping them talk about how do you look for signals, right? So what, what Bob says is the future is here now. It's just unevenly distributed. And so the way we see the future is we look at signals that drive our curiosity. And I, I find that really fascinating. And as I've learned from him, I kind of pay attention to what surprises me in the world because that's sort of a signal, right? When you're surprised, that's a signal of the unevenly distributed future. What I'll say, what I thought you were going to ask is a little bit different, and I'll, I'll say this is kind of a like a, a way that I, I work with leaders sometimes. Most of us in organizations have what I call a key question about us. So if you think about when you're part of a team, you know what everybody on your team's key question is. And what that sounds like is, Stacy is really good at X, but can she do Y, right? So... Stacy's really good at public speaking, but can she really operate a P&L, you know, and execute, right? That might be a key question someone has about me. The way leaders actually develop in an organization is by answering their key questions. So we do a lot in our industry about creating development plans and talent planning and assessments and all those things are really useful tools. 
But in my experience, the way I've seen it work is there's a key question that people have about me, right? So let's go back earlier. Um, Stacy's a great project manager as a consultant, and she's great at client relationships, but can she manage the business? Until I answer that question for enough people, I will not be presented with a new opportunity in the organization. And so what I do in my work with leaders is I help them think about what is the key question everyone has about you? And once you figure out it is, how are you going to answer it? Because once you answer it, a new question will appear and that will give you a new opportunity. And that's how it actually works. And so when you ask key question, I was thinking about, you know, like I find it really helpful to just say to people, what's the question people have about you and how are you going to answer it? And if it's, and sometimes when people start thinking about it, they go, well, the key question people have about me is false. I should already, you know, it's, I can't believe people are still asking, you know, can I manage a P&L? And then I said, well, then the issue is marketing and communication. How are you going to show them that you can do that? Other times it's, well, I don't have the skill and I have to learn it. But it's a really great way to think about your development if you start to see what is the question. And the great thing is it's easy to do. You can go talk to the people you work with. You can ask your boss, what's the question everybody has about me? And they will tell you. That was kind of what I thought you'd say. I'm just like, that's my sort of pragmatic tip of how, you know, if you want to think about how coaches help people develop, that's how I work with people a lot. This podcast is sponsored by Mindset Shift, a leadership development company focused on helping you lead from the inside out, not from the outside in. We work one-on-one with senior leaders in organizations. We work directly with HR and other parts of the organizations to help you create an authentic culture where your words and your values and your actions all align. We help you do navigate the complexity and the chaos that we all experience day in and day out. And we have a couple of openings for the one-to-one coaching this year. If that's something that you're interested in, if you want to work with a coach who can help you navigate this year to ensure that you're intentional, to take your leadership skills personally and professionally to the next level, send me an email at hello at mindsetshift.co.uk or just go to the website www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Now let's get back into today's episode. If you're a CEO and you don't necessarily have psychological safety, how do you get the answer to that question then? Because I'm sure I've been in boardrooms, I've been in boardrooms where you have a meeting, everyone nods their head, they're all in agreement, and then they leave, and then they have a meeting outside the meeting because no one really agreed with that CEO. But back to what you said about fear and safety, they didn't feel like they could speak up. So if that's the environment that's currently created, a CEO is not necessarily going to get answered that question from his people. So are there spaces and places or you can go to to be able to get an answer to that question, which hopefully would then help to unlock some of the things that they everyone experience right now around psychological safety, for example? Well, there are two ways I would answer that question. The first is I would say to a CEO, if you don't have at least one person who you feel on your team is speaking candidly to you, that's a leadership issue, right? And that's that's your that's your question, right? Like your question is, can this leader, will this leader listen? So that's one. I'm not dismissing the realities of power, which is power mutes those around us. But usually behind closed doors, a CEO has one or two people that if they turn to them and say, 
what does the team need more of from me? There's at least one person who should talk to them. I think the most successful CEOs, what I observe about them is they are very, very good at cultivating and curating advisors. Some of that is their direct reports, some of that's their board, and then there's other people. When I work with CEOs, the first thing I do is I interview people who are critical to their success because of that, the impact, the power mutes those so that I can come back. And I, and I actually ask really basic, non-complicated questions. I kind of ask three questions, which is, what should the CEO be prioritizing? Because I'm checking for that context. What does the CEO do really well? What do you wish they did more or less of? And what's your advice for them? You know, and bring that back. Because if you get answers to those questions, you're going to be more effective. What should I be doing? What am I doing well? What am I not doing well? And anything else I should know? But that's kind of how we talk as, you know, like that's kind of what people need. And I'm a big believer in, you know, being being real in how we develop leaders versus overcomplicating it. So part of it is get, the, the first question is, if you don't feel like anybody's giving you feedback, the question they have about you is, will the CEO listen? And if that's not it, how do you get someone who's going to provide you some candid feedback so you can get more precise in your development? For you and your personal development, what have been some of the, I guess, the biggest learnings or the biggest, yeah, the biggest learning that you've had to go through in your journey, especially the last two years building out this company and the work that you do and changing environment? Wow. So what's my development? I have so many things that I need to work on from the small to the large. I, you know, I, I like that sort of quote that, you know, if your dreams don't scare you, you're not dreaming big enough. So I think for me, pushing myself to face fear and being bringing it in versus running from it is something that I kind of constantly have to work on. I really believe that it's easy when you get really good at something. There's like a fine line between mastery and irrelevance. And so what I love is mastery. Being really, really good at something is very satisfying to me. And being really, really good at my work is satisfying. However, what I've seen, you know, over my career is there's that line where someone's really good, where they get overconfident and they don't push themselves and they don't stay fresh. And that is a problem. So for me, I always choose to work with other people. And my development is to make sure I balance my confidence with what I know worked, with being open to things, particularly when I don't like them. So, you know, there are times when I, I recently had to, to team, actually partnered with people from another company and they wanted to do things. And I was like, I don't, I don't like that at all. And I was like, I'm going to just see. And it turned out some things they did that I would have thought wouldn't resonate were incredibly impactful. That helped me learn. And that was exciting and it makes me better. So it's like a paradox, right? It's like, if you want mastery, you have to put your mastery aside sometimes to do what you think won't work so you can continue to get better. So that's kind of, I feel like where I am now is I feel like I do have a lot of mastery and there are things I'm good at, but I fear not changing enough, not learning enough. How do I constantly stay relevant? Because that's what our clients have to do, 
right? That's what leaders are doing. I have to make sure I do that. And I think that's a big part of my development. You know, and also I tend to be about five minutes late for Zooms and it makes my team crazy. And I wish I could go home all that. But so I'm really bad at that. They have patience with me and a lot of empathy, I guess. I'm lucky. I dare with it right. You know, it's great. It's real, right? You know, none of us. I, I'll tell you, I had a boss once. He was a great mentor for me. I learned so much from him and I grateful for all he did for me. And one of the things that he was really wonderful about is he let me tease him, which was delightful. And I remember when I would make big mistakes, I would say, you know, boss, what I really appreciate about you is you're not perfect either. So I don't have to be. And God bless him. Like he would let me say that to him. And it kind of was a reminder that none of us are perfect and we would laugh like we're all kind of doing the best that we can and we're in it together. You know, I, I guess if you ask me kind of what's one thing I wish for, it's that we remember each other's humanity and that none of us are perfect. We're not perfect. It would be boring if we were perfect. We would be boring and we're not. If we as leaders and colleagues and coworkers could have more grace for imperfections, I think things would be a lot better for all of us. It would make such a, a massive difference, but actually in that, imperfection as we try to figure things out is also where we see a lot of that innovation growth creativity so much comes out of that imperfection that we we miss and we lose when we don't have that grace for each other so um i can so so resonate with that and um be interested to even hear from in fact let me when when you think about everything that you've built up over the last 20 plus years all the different experiences you've had different people you've worked with different companies places you've lived is there one particular moment that stands out to you that was very defining to and pivotal to who you are now? I'll tell you how I think about it is I don't know that there are moments, and this may not surprise you, but there are relationships. If I think about the path and how I got to where I am, the way I look at it are the relationships that got me here. It's the people that I learned from. And that was people I worked with or people I met or even my kids, like those things are what changed me. Like I changed in relationship with people rather than moments. I can think about the things that I did, the accomplishments that I had. But when I think about what defined me, and it's funny because I don't, I think I ask people, it's funny, I'm, I'm reflecting on, hmm, do I ask my coaches this? I ask them about their accomplishments. But when I think about what I learned and how I was shaped, I will tell you it's by people. And I could tell you the people in my life and what are the things that I learned from them and how they shaped me more quickly than I could the moments. The, the mentors I had who trusted me more than I trusted myself. The direct reports who I learned from and learned how to be gracious. My kids who taught me that I cannot control everything because even if you create an Excel spreadsheet, you're not going to get a pattern in how it can sleeps until they're like six months old. Like whatever. Like for me, it wasn't the moment as much as it was the who and the people. I think that's a really important point, though, because I think a lot of times we can lose sight of that and we can get lost in the moments. Especially as senior leaders, you can get lost in the thing, the project, the right now and recognizing the importance of the relationships behind us helps us to know that we shouldn't let the moment spoil the relationship because that's what really can help to shape and mold us not just from where we are right now but over the course of a lifetime 
that's why I was curious to see like what you where you went with that work and you went to relationships which as a psychologist especially you said everything everything you said at the start it's a, it's a good thing <laughs> but I, I love that I love that idea of like how do we make space for the relationship to emerge right and when we're responding to email and we're going from meeting to meeting or zoom to zoom or it's you know no seconds like it can be hard to be in relationship with people but i don't know i think that's how i've seen people learn and if you ask people you tell me you've been interviewing you know people for a long time what are the moments that define them and how much of them are in relationship i i would guess a lot of them are whatever that moment was it was with someone who represented an important relationship. Maybe not. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely relationships. And there's people who, like I said, have had multiple wars, launched some in different things, a lot of more familiar businesses. But fundamentally, they all come back to relationships. So whether it's with their partners, their kids, a mentor from 30 years ago, something along those lines, there's been someone that, whether someone that believed in them, someone that spoke from life into them, there's been something about relationships that they've held onto that's really helped to shape. And like I said, it's an ever-evolving thing. It's, okay, in this chapter of my life, I've met this person, this helped me do this. And then that next chapter, it's been this person, there's always been around people. So many times they point to, I've got all these different accolades that people see externally. But in honesty, they don't mean that much to me. It's been the story either behind getting to that point or the story with the individuals that have resonated so much and they can hold on to that keep on pushing them forward which is it's fascinating i really agree and when we have going back when we have authority figures in our life parents mentors bosses teachers when those relationships work we feel like we talk a lot about psychological safety psychological safety to me and its basis is when a person who has power gives grace to someone who has less period and so that means as a leader or a person in power how do you pay that forward and do that that means grace to have an idea grace to take a chance push a boundary how are you going to respond when someone does that when we're at our best maybe we give that grace to others sometimes when we're not we don't but for me it's kind of an operating principle and the last question will then be, how do you define leadership? It's funny. Throughout my career, I've had so many people ask me to create a model or a framework, a competency model to define leadership. It's this thing that we want to define because if we define it, we can control it, we can develop it, we can organize around it. And what I have seen is that there are some things about leadership that are classic, right? Everybody wants to know, how is leadership different today? I think there's a more useful question which is what is actually enduring, right? That's actually as useful a question to say, what is enduring versus what's different? Both matter. There are things that are enduring. Like I think Jeff Bezos talked at Amazon about how everyone's asking him what's different and he wished people would say what's the same. I kind of feel the same way. So how I think about leadership is there are some things that are basic, how we inspire people, how we influence, how we collaborate, how we set a direction. Those are kind of enduring. What's different and what the world wants more now is that relational, emotional context at work. People are ready to talk about that and they're ready. When I started out 25 years as a psychologist and said I want to be in business as a psychologist, people thought that was weird. Nobody thinks it's weird anymore because the world has changed and people realize that leadership happens in relationship. So it is the relationship between a leader and their followers that makes things happen. And that's, that's how I think of it is leadership is building relationships with people so they will follow you to 
do things that others thought weren't possible. What a such a great, great space, great time just to actually end this because I'm so agree with you. I think the world is ready for relationships and workplaces and leaders are the one at the start of that journey that really need to model that and what that looks like. So 100% here for that for sure. And thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation, for sharing your experience, your journey, everything you've gone through. Um, I've, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this. So I really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I feel so grateful and I really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you so much. All the information about um, Stacy, her organization, how you can get involved, um, potentially work with them will be available for you in the show notes. But you've heard her. You know what she's about. You know what the organization's about that she's leading. So get involved. Work with her because you will not regret it. There's everyday leadership. We'll see you next week. While you're still recovering from that amazing conversation, let me give you a quick preview of what we got coming up next week. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. When I had to do some inner child work with my therapist and she was like, okay, so let's go back to the age of six. No, she's like, what age do you think that, you know, it all changed for you? And I was like, she's like, let's go to six. And I was like, why six? Like, um, and it's funny because I do that with my clients too. Um, now, but um, six, yeah, happy-go-lucky child. Pretty much very curious, always in, in people's business, but not in people's business, you know? Like, I was, yeah, because you know, I, I know things, I know things I shouldn't be knowing, but I'd be knowing them, you know what I'm saying? Um, loved writing, loved reading. Um, I was into books from a very early age. 